Hello, and welcome to the Libertarian Podcast from the Hoover Institution. I'm your host, Troy Senek, joined, as always, by the Libertarian himself, Professor Richard Epstein, Senior Fellow at the Hoover Institution, as well as Professor of Law at NYU and Senior Lecturer at the University of Chicago. Today, Title IX and College Justice. All right, Richard, for the last several years, there's been this tremendous amount of attention paid to the issue of sexual misconduct on college campuses, sort of on the one side the contention that incidents of rape and sexual assault are at crisis levels in higher education. On the other, the argument that not only is that overstated but that the way these allegations are handled on a lot of campuses flouts sort of basic due process protections. And You recently wrote a column for defining ideas on this topic and before we get into the various sort of legal and policy issues at work, why don't you explain the case that inspired the column? It involves a student at Colorado State University in Pueblo by the name of Grant Neal. Well, Grant Neal was an athlete. Uh, he was a black man judging from the picture. Uh, he did a couple of sports and he had sexual relations with a woman. And then what happens is a friend of the woman claimed that this was a rape case and reported him uh, to the local authorities. The woman who was involved in the incident said, no, this was just fine. He's a good man. There was nothing wrong in this particular case, at which point one would have thought that the whole incident would have come to an end. After all, if you have somebody who is willing to come forward and saying that she was not a victim, this is not a case of shyness or embarrassment or coercion. But what happened is the local authorities, under pressure from the Office of Civil Rights, decided to push on with this particular case, and it resulted in a very serious order that he be removed from, camp from campus. Uh, it resulted in a situation where he was stripped of his two athletic scholarships. It resulted in a situation where he's kind of persona non grata and cannot get himself a position in a school anywhere else. And so what he has to do is to fight back, and he's brought himself this kind of lawsuit um, alleging sex discrimination. I think actually the charges are much more serious than uh, sex discrimination. I regard this as a very serious incident of malicious prosecution, and it's only going to be some kind of clever government immunity that keeps the Office of Civil Rights from getting this. Uh, but the thing that is so troublesome about the whole incident is OCS um, certainly has cast itself in a very bad light uh, by people like myself who actually think that procedures matter. Uh, but if you go to the Congress, it turns out there's some people who applaud all the things that it does and want to increase the size of its budget so that it could take after more of these kinds of cases in the same kind of way. So what you do is there's so many issues today in modern America, you have two sides and no middle. Um, this is a case in which I know from my point of view, I regard the government behavior as unforgivable, and people on the other side seem to regard it as some kind of a massive social imperative, and it's important to understand it's not just one incident, it's a whole pattern and practice, to use the government's favorite phrase, of over-enforcement both by the Office of Civil Rights and also by the Department of Justice, which has joint responsibility for enforcing Title IX. This is not Title IX of the Civil Rights Act having to do with sex discrimination in athletics. Uh, this is Title IX of a different statute um, having to do with the question of how it is that you cut off funds uh, when it turns out there is some form of discrimination that has taken place on okay, campus. Let's uh, let me have you walk us through some of these mechanics that you've described here. What the university is doing here flows largely from guidance that comes from the Office of Civil Rights, something called the Dear Colleague Letter. And Richard, I want you to explain the influence of that letter here, but why don't you do this for us first? 
Explain what it means for the Department of Education to give guidance. Well, guidance is a very loaded term and essentially in some senses it's perfectly innocuous. That is, you have these complicated statutes. They often have ambiguous terms. People are looking for safe harbor and if the government says you do this, that or the other thing, you're going to be fine. But if you do this, that or the other thing, maybe not so good. The traditional view of what a guidance was, was you were trying to explicate a statute, not to extend its reach, not to consent it. And these were called interpretive rulings under the Administrative Procedure Act or policy statements of one kind or another. But starting around 1995 or so, the whole world started to change. Uh, The general rules under the Administrative Procedure Act of 1946 said that you had one of two formal ways in which you could implement regulations that had the force of law. One of them was to have this elaborate formal hearing with cross-examination, witnesses, and so forth. And this would be so cumbersome that unless it's expressly provided for by statute, nobody does it. But the other thing is much more sensible. It's called notice and comment. The government puts out a general statement of what it's about in the simplest form, and lots of people then comment on it before the thing becomes law. And you see a kind of an iterative process. The government proposes something, comments are made, government responds to this, more comments are made, until you come up with one of these sort of industry-wide accommodations that's so typical of what goes on in the administrative state. Uh, But the guidance has got no statutory authorization. And what it is, it's essentially what the government says. This is what we would like to do. It's not binding on you. You're not required to follow it. You could do anything else. And by the way, if you don't follow it, we'll beat you over the head with a brick. And so what has come out of this situation now is that the guidance gives no chance for public input. And it's not an explication of what it is that the statute of the regs say. It's just something that's made up out of whole cloth. I mean, even I, who'm cynical about government, went back and started to check the regulations that have been decided by both the CFR, by the, in, the, in the Code of Federal Regulations, both by the DOJ and, and by the Office of Civil Rights. And these were perfectly banal regulations. All the stuff about harassment is not mentioned anywhere in them. And so what happens is now the government starts to say Title IX requires in this very strong terms. Let me just read you the statute and then you know, we can talk about it. No person in the United States shall, on the basis of sex, be excluded from participation in, be denied the benefits or, or be subject to discrimination under any education program or activity receiving federal assistance. And so, you know, the way in which you read that is if the government is going to start to give you money under a program, uh, you cannot, in the course of implementing that program, discriminate on the basis of race or on the basis, in this particular case, of gender. And it was designed to say, in effect, look, um, if you're going to open up lab sciences to men, you have to open it up to women and so forth. And it's the word otherwise, you know, subjected to discrimination that seems to bear all of the word and then you look at the government they define discrimination for these purposes as harassment done by private parties they then assume that it covers not only what takes place on campus but takes place everywhere else Uh, the Supreme Court in dealing with sexual harassment starts talking about pervasive and persistent behaviors Uh, when the government decides to put its definitions out it means that an occasional or sporadic remark can in fact trigger an entire investigation or some kind of a punishment it's not only that you worry about what the office Offenses, but you require uh, all of these institutions to hire you know, compliance officers, often former people who worked in the government, so they can instruct you on what you're doing. They fine you under these things for not getting the right kind of anticipatory provisions in place. What they do is they take out of this sense and make an entire rather grotesque, I might add, 
code of compliance and civil procedure and it's all out of whole cloth. And everybody in the world is frightened to challenge it because then the government will come down on you. And the basic maxim is uh, the power to investigate is the power to destroy. The government has no limits on what it can do. And if you're right and they decide to exonerate you, which doesn't happen very often, they may send you, sorry, but they won't pay you a dime. They won't do anything to restore your reputation. This has essentially become completely unmoored from every other form of government control. It is absolutely um, a, a juggernaut is the term I use in the column, uh, run by people who have no respect for anybody who differs from them and take every statutory authority they have and a lot that they don't have and push it beyond the max. Richard, this is a very basic question but one that I think occurs to most people who find this whole situation on college campuses a little bizarre. Rape, sexual assault – these are serious allegations. How is it that if these things rise to the level of being justiciable that they are handled by the university oftentimes instead of by conventional law enforcement? Well, I mean one of the things of course is that people who claim that there's an epidemic, sometimes 20 percent of the women have been subject to sexual assault. But what happens is everything here lies in the definition and sexual assault may mean a kind of a situation where you brush against a woman by accident, somebody could say it's an assault or you say some words that are taken in the wrong way. Uh, so the kinds of things that you're talking about as sexual assault don't even rise to the level where any sane police department would care to um, consider them. There are, of course, some very serious cases in which rape does take place and those should be referred, I think, to criminal authorities. But even if that takes place, you still have the question of do you keep a student who's a convicted rapist in your midst or do you require them to be be suspended or to be expelled. And, you know, that's a serious kind of question and the answer should be if you give the appropriate kind of hearings, yes. What the problem is with OCS is they assume that a false negative, that is um, a charge which lets somebody off when they've committed something, is beyond horror. Whereas a false process that is finding somebody guilty of something you didn't commit, that's part of life in the big city. And so you should take it. You have to understand this is a complete reversal of the usual presumption of innocent and requirements of proof beyond a reasonable doubt when you impose criminal sanctions. Now, these aren't criminal sanctions, but they're very heavy burdens that you have to bear, often heavier than the fines that you might get. Uh, they usually don't involve incarceration. But when you throw somebody off a campus for nothing, this is a very big deal and they basically say we are so concerned about one kind of error we don't worry about the other and in so doing they manage to upset every principle associated with the equitable application of due process rules. In your column on this for Defining Ideas, you write, quoting you here, there is little that any private or public university can do itself to stop the Title IX juggernaut when even the federal government's power to investigate imposes massive costs on private institutions, both in dollars and in reputation, close quote. So in other words, as we seem to see in a lot of cases of overreach from the administrative state, the process can really be the, the punishment here. So if the universities can't do much on their own, What's the solution here, Richard? How do we unspool this? Well, I mean, first of all, a little bit of public indignation would go a very long way in cases of this particular sort uh, because the cure has to come in one of two ways. First of all, you have to change administrations in the Justice Department and the Office of Civil Rights. None of this stuff would have happened if there had been a Republican administration. I think it's just perfectly clear that on this particular situation, the Republicans are more conservative about these charges and would not engage in this behavior. But so long as you have an 
an Obama in office and so long as he appoints an Eric Holder and so long as you have this very aggressive civil rights mentality on the progressive front, this stuff is going to continue. Um, and I don't think there's anything that one can do about it except some of these university officials have to really stand up. The horrifying thing in many of these cases is there are a lot of university presidents who kind of think this is okay. I mean, uh, there is a recent episode at Harvard involving Drew Gilpin's spouse, who's the Harvard president. And, you know, she wants to basically shut down a group of eating clubs, which are not supported by Harvard, and to say that anybody who joins in any one of these clubs is a misogynist. And so, therefore, we won't let you go to Harvard if you attend these organizations. And you know, I regard this as absolutely off the wall. Um, that somebody should say that there's no proof there's no evidence it's just this sort of a priori feminism which thinks the worst of everybody and you've got feminists you have women's clubs you have men's clubs you have a couple of co-eds clubs it's not as though she gave a list of abuses on which this was going and you know if you can't get the president of Harvard to be even moderately sane on an issue like this it's going to be very difficult to form a coalition um, so the problem is much more acute than one might think because there are many people inside the universities who in effect are perfectly comfortable. The Harvard Law School faculty, there were about 26 or 28 people, including some people on the left who signed a very strong letter attacking um, the Office of Civil Rights for what it did by way of a settlement. Uh, but you know, there were large numbers of the faculty, remembered who remained silent, and there were probably another large number of the faculty um, who happened to approve this. So this is a very kind of difficult problem. And you know, it seems to me you have to speak up. I recently signed a letter, which I thought summarized the situation pretty well. But you know, if we had a dozen signatures on the letter, it would have been a lot. So I mean, I think one of the real difficulties in this particular case is that my views are decidedly in the minority. I don't think they're wrong. Uh, can you challenge these in court? Well, yes, it turns out that Grant Neal has challenged them in court, and he may make some kind of headway. The difficulty with this, Troy, is um, that, A, there's always a presumption that the government is right, and yeah, it's been invoked in so many cases they may not remove it. That normally doesn't apply in civil rights case, but Grant Neal is not your typical civil rights claimant in this particular case. And then there are all of the stuff about official immunity, sovereign immunity and the like, which makes it very difficult to get through one of these cases, even to get to the merits. And the government, they are very good at defending themselves by putting every kind of procedural obstacle in the path of a suit like this. Uh, so I think, in effect, that it's a very grim kind of landscape and it's just part and possible what I regard as a sort of general decline in civic morality um, throughout so much of the United States. So final question just to advance that line of thought. This is just one of many fronts on which it seems like higher education is just another American institution that is getting dragged down by the weight of bureaucracy, by the weight of mission creep, by sort of losing sight of its core mission. You've spent your life in universities. To what extent – do you have any hope that this will eventually be self-correcting? Well, it's very hard to have a lot of hope in its self-correction because, as I said, there's so many people inside universities who actually share the vision. I mean, in fact, you know, when I start looking at some of the actions that were taken at Harvard, right now there's an Occupy Harvard Law School campaign that's been going on for four months, and Martha Minow, the dean, doesn't want to boost those people out or arrest them, which is, I think, what should be done. It's quite clear Peter Solovey at Yale has basically wimped out on most of these things. Chris Eisgruber, um, a former student of mine, I might 
tight end who's at Princeton's been a little bit savvier about this, but it's not as though he's standing up tough. But remember, they at least didn't take Woodrow Nate Wilson's name out of it. What happens is on the race front at least, um, so long as slavery is part of the American past, there is always something for modern institutions for atone for. And what people do is use that as a bargaining chip in order to get some collateral concession on matters which on their own terms are probably rightly decided. Uh, but if you start seeing the reaction at universities to the protest, what is it? Well, we're going to commit more money to affirmative action programs and special hiring and diversity. I regard most of these programs as borderline disrespectful. I don't think they are strong academic programs. And it's not that I'm against studying issues about race and so forth. But I've always thought that these things are better studied within traditional departments by people with varying points of views rather than being a special area in which only people who have the right attitudes on sex and on race who come from the right groups are allowed to speak and everybody is an outsider who can't talk. I mean, I've lived to talk about this, but you know, 24 years ago, I wrote a book called Forbidden Grounds Calling for the Abolition of the Anti-Employment Discrimination as in Competitive Markets, an Important Limitation. I've lived to tell the story, uh, but I'm not so sure if somebody you know, of age 40 were to write a similar book like that today, uh, that they would be as fortunate. All right. Thank you, Richard, and thank you to our listeners. And remember, you can find Richard's weekly column, The Libertarian, by visiting Defining Ideas at hoover.org. And you can follow him on Twitter at Richard. I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. This podcast has been a production of the Hoover Institution. For more information about our work, please visit hoover.org.